Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, Thinking Through the Trinity via the Belgic Confession. This is part one of two on this topic. Uh, Ken, well, first of all, hello, guys. How you doing? Good, good. Doing well, Joe. All right. Good to be here. Have a chance to interact with each other. Yes. That's right. Ken, what, uh, what can we look forward to on these two podcasts? Well, nothing brand new. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the foundations of Christian doctrine. Of course, I'm speaking of what I would call the cockpit of Christian theology, which is the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity specifically. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, how it's expressed in the Belgic Confession. If you're not familiar with the Belgic Confession, that's the historic Reformed Confession of Faith written in 1561. So the very century in which Protestantism began. But of course, we uh, we're looking historically. I mean, I could introduce the same thing with the Anglican 39 Articles, the Presbyterian Westminster Confession, the Lutheran Augsburg Confession, or the Baptist Confession of Faith, the Methodist Confession of Faith. Point here is that the Trinity is historically Christian, and uh, if you get it wrong, uh, you've got you've got big problems. So we're gonna we're gonna talk in the first program, kind of taking it and understanding it, and then we'll look a little bit later at uh, its importance. Wonderful, and just to buttress your point, uh, sooner or later somebody's either gonna come knocking at your door. Or you're going to run into people who are really confused about the Trinity, or perhaps you are yourself. Uh, it's it's one of those bedrock doctrines that has been thought through very carefully, as you mentioned. So it's a it's a good uh, lesson that we're going to get today. Right on target, Joe. Um, at some point, I'm hoping to write a book that will be somewhat of a intellectual autobiography, and one of the th things I want to share in that book is uh, the first apologetic challenge I had to my faith was the Trinity, and it was by a Jehovah's Witness, and I'll I'll share a little bit about that today. Mm. Wonderful. Well, uh, I like to quote um, a discussion that the great Yale historian of Christianity, Yaroslav Pelikan, had many years ago with the then editor of Christianity Today magazine, his name is David Neff. I, I know David. David, uh, I interviewed him on the Bible Answer Man uh, back in the early 1990s. And the conversation was, uh, again, Neff, the evangelical uh, Pelican, had been a Lutheran theologian in his early life, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, conservative Lutheran, uh, but later in life converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. That's quite a, quite a change. But Pelican said to Neff, he said, you evangelicals, you talk too much about Jesus and you don't think enough about the Trinity. Well, as I have often said, I don't know if you can talk too much about Jesus. Uh, he is God in human flesh. He is our Lord and Savior. Uh, the focus of the Gospels is upon him. Uh, but I do agree with that second sentiment that 
evangelicals probably do not think enough about the Trinity. And remember that since Jesus is the Spirit-anointed Son of the Father, you can't have Jesus without the Trinity. And what I love about some of the uh, more traditional uh, forms of worship is you get that Trinitarianism uh, running through the service. So let's begin with uh, looking briefly at Article 8 of the Belgic Confession. Again, it's a Reformed Confession of Faith uh, written in 1561. Uh, Article 8, the Trinity, it says, in keeping, in keeping with this truth and word of God, we believe in one God who is one single essence in whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their communicable properties, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So right there at the get-go, we're told that there's one God who is one single essence in whom there are three persons. Very straightforward. Uh, there's one God, one single essence or being, but there are three persons or subsistence. And if we take that word Trinity, um, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses have told me at my front door a few times, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. My response is the word Bible doesn't appear in the Bible either. Uh, neither does the theocratic watchtower uh, appear in the Bible. But let's let's talk about this idea that God is one being or one in essence, but three in person, or to use a technical theological term, three in subsistence. I like to often say, philosophically, we can describe the Trinity as one what and three who's. That is, philosophy distinguishes between what, that is being, and who, that is personhood. And that's important because people do challenge the Trinity. They say, this is just a contradiction. You're saying God is one and he's not one. He's three and he's not three. But the early Christians and, and the theologians through the centuries recognized that, no, what we're saying is that the way in which God is one, his essence, he's not three. And the way God is three in his personhood or substance, He's not one. So it, it isn't a formal contradiction. Now, uh, so in terms of what God is, he's one and only one divine being. So this is classically called monotheism. But in terms of who God is, he's three distinct persons. Now, we didn't say separate persons. We said three distinct persons. I want to come back to that in a few minutes. Here's what J.I. Packer said. Uh, Packer was an Anglican theologian uh, who for many years worked uh, with Christianity Today, writing and uh, uh, has written some classic books like Knowing God. That's a contempt, in my opinion, that's a contemporary classic in theology. Packer says, God is not only he, but also they. God is not only he, but also they. There's a plurality of persons within the one Godhead. So again, God is one in a way. He's not three. Call that being, call that essence. God is three in a way. He's not one, personhood. So it's not a and non-a. 
uh, God is God is different in his essence than in his personhood. Now, the, the word Trinity, uh, where do we get it? Doesn't appear in the Bible. Uh, that's okay. There are lots of words that don't appear in the Bible, but we use them because they they um, express what is said in the Bible. So Trinity means three in one. Think of Trinity as triunity. Triunity, tri three, unity one, three in one. And that term comes from the Latin Trinitas. And we can trace that term back to the great uh, North African church father, Tertullian. We've talked a little bit about Tertullian on this program. One of his, one of his powerful quotes uh, is, you know, what's the difference between Athens? Can there be, will there be ever agreement between Athens and Jerusalem? So uh, he was a great North African church father, uh, and he used the word Trinitas. He said, a trinity of one divinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A trinity, uh, a trinity of one divinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that word trinity is the Latin Trinitas. I want to say one more word about um, Tertullian. His dates are approximately 160 to 230, 160 to 230. So right around the middle of the second century, and then he lives into the third century. If you want to think about it in terms of a time frame, he lives 200 years before St. Augustine. Augustine states 354 to 430, so 200 years before St. Augustine. And Augustine wrote that great book on the Trinity. Um, uh, but here we have a North African church father who is, and Augustine was also a church father. 200 years before that, he's using the word Trinitas. Okay, now, uh, as, as Joe mentioned uh, early on, what's important about the Trinity is uh, not only that it is historically what Christians have affirmed, and that its origins find themselves in Scripture itself, but this is a controversial doctrine. It uh, it got pushed back uh, in the early church uh, among various groups, and it gets pushed back today. Again, people will knock at your door, and uh, they'll challenge uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. So, uh, no other religion conceives of God in this way, differentiating between his single essence, essence or being, and his mysterious plurality of personhood. You might even say, and I think it's fair to say, that while Judaism and Islam, and I mean traditional Judaism, remember Judaism has evolved. Um, it's, it's projected that maybe you know, 40% of Jews are secular. Uh, we can't think of Judaism exactly the way it was taught in the Old Testament or in what they call the Tanakh, but traditional Judaism, they believed that there was one God, one person, Yahweh. Uh, Islam holds a traditional Unitarian monotheistic faith. Uh, Allah is one God, one person. Now, of course, Christianity and Judaism have a close relationship. And so we ask the question, well, if 
Christianity comes out of Judaism, how do you have uh, three persons in the in the Godhead when traditional Judaism believes there's only one person in the Godhead? Well, my comment would be, re remember that God is prog progressively revealing himself. I think you can find an implicit Trinitarianism in the Old Testament, and, and it's implicit in my mind, not explicit. But in the New Testament, it comes forward with uh, an abundance of, of clarity. So Trinitarianism is therefore a unique form of monotheism. We believe that God is personal and more. Uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament is personal. Allah within the Islamic religion is personal. But God is more than personal. Instead of one God, one person, he's one God three persons. So this, again, distinguishes Christianity. Um, I like the idea. Uh, Michael Reeves says that the Trinity is the theological co uh, cockpit of uh, Christian theology, and I, I like what he has to say there. Okay, uh, I want to pause. Any thoughts? Yeah, questions? I'd like to ask a question or make a comment that, you know, when I was early in my Christian life, trying to grasp some of the things that we've just been talking about. Uh, some of the words that were used were, um, you know, yeah, I had different ideas about what they meant. I'm talking about the word essence, for instance, equating that with being and the natural inclination to equate that with personhood. Yeah. So, you know, there was this this confusion in my mind that it isn't you know when you're a human being you're a person yeah and and now we're making a distinction between being or essence and personhood so that took a while for that to cook in my yeah. mind and for me to be able to think oh oh okay it's being used another word that is used when it speaks, uh, and you'll come against this a little bit later, but I'll just mention it now. Yeah. And that is the word subsistence is used. Yeah. That God subsists. And, you know, I, I'm familiar with the word consist. Something consists of so and so and so, but I wasn't used to the word subsist. Yeah. So it, it's helpful if you explain some of these words yeah. and their meaning and why they're used in these particular contexts. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly, I think, many of our experience, Dave, that when we're thinking about the Trinity, uh, there is this language issue. Part of the issue has to do with, um, <clears throat> in talking about Christian theology, some terms find their origin in the Greek, other terms find their origin in Latin, Sometimes the Latin uh, is, is, uh, has more application. So, for example, um, you know, in the, in the early church, you might say that God was uh, one essence or usia, but he is three hypostasis. And uh, then somebody comes along and says, well, wait a second, uh, hypostasis could mean in essence and person. And so the church had to battle uh, 
and had to be careful about the language that they used. Now you you raise a you raise an issue, and I'm going to I'm going to come to that in a in just a couple minutes. But I'm glad you raised it because uh, language is is very important, and and the, this was not lost on the the early church that was trying to formulate exactly what they meant by the Trinity. Now they didn't invent this out of thin air. They saw it in Scripture. The apostles taught it. Its roots are in the uh, in the Bible itself, but the church had to come up with a way that it could communicate correct ideas. Um, and so, um, I want to come back to that question a little while about, you know, a person being a being. I'm one person, one being. You're one person, one being. Joe's one person, one being. Uh, we're three persons, but we have separate beings. I want to come back to that in just a couple minutes. Let me read just a bit more from the Belgic Confession. It says, The Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Father is the cause, the origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. That's often the way the creeds and the confessions of Christianity, they begin with the Father. They relate the Father to creation. Um, of course, remember the theological principle that whenever one member of the Trinity is involved in an act, uh, all three are. Creation, the Father is the primary agent, but we know that the Spirit and the Logos, the Son, the Word, they also were involved in creation. Belgic Confession says the Son is the Word, John 1, the wisdom, the image of the Father, the Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. And so you can see that the Belgic Confession, a Reformed Confession, is a Western Confession because that debate in 1054 between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, the Protestants were Western. And so they said that uh, in terms of the procession of the Spirit, you know, the Spirit proceeds the Eastern Church says that the Spirit proceeds only from the Father, whereas the Western Church, Catholic and Protestant, says, oh, the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, and that's what the term filioque means. Now, let's go to this next part of the Belgic Confession. It says, nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three since Scripture teaches that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each has its own subsistence, distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. Now, let's come back to the point Dave made, and it's it's um, it's something that I that always comes up. Um, the three persons in the Godhead, we can distinguish them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're not, we don't accept modalism. And again, I'll come to that in a few minutes. Modalism taught that there was only one person in the Godhead, and he just changed faces. He changed modes of expression. Sometimes he would he would appear as the Father, maybe in creation. Then he would change his appearance to that of the Son in redemption. And then he would change, put a mask on, appear in the mode or the form in as the Holy Spirit, maybe on the day of Pentecost. 
but that contains, it has kind of an interesting logic. I remember early on when my wife and I've had many conversations about the Trinity. And I remember after we got married, she goes, yeah, well, I, I think I actually held a modalistic view. I thought that it was the father became the son and then the son became the spirit. And I, I said, oh, my gosh, I've married a modalist. Um, <laughs> so I converted her and she became a fine Trinitarian. Um, but these ideas. So let me come back to that idea. I've got Joe, Ken and Dave. We're all persons. We've got a will. We've got a mind consciousness, but we're also three separate beings. With the Trinity, uh, we have three distinct persons. I don't think we want to say separate persons. We want, They're distinct persons, but they have... And by that, you mean that you can distinguish between them. There are That's differences, right. yeah. That's right. You can distinguish the persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, uh, you've got various places when Jesus is baptized, you know, the, the Father speaks, the Spirit descends. Uh, there are various places where we can distinguish them one from another, but they're not separate beings. And we have to be careful about saying they're separate persons because that seems to convey the idea that they're like us. Whereas God is super personal. He is one being, three persons, and um, that that's going to make a an, an important difference there. Um, now you say, well, how is how is that possible? Well, remember, we're talking about God. We're talking about a God that is mysterious to us. And I have a quote a little bit later that I want to read from my colleague Rob Bowman about how much how much do we understand of the trinity and how much of it is is mysterious okay moving a little let me, further. let me ask a question right at this point go ahead in in what you quoted a moment ago um you spoke of the scripture teaches the father son and the holy spirit each has his own subsistence yes. distinguished by characteristics now, why do they use the word subsistence? Why didn't they say each has his own existence, for instance? Yeah, because subsistence is closer to person than it is to existence. Um, existence has a greater connection to being. Um, the, okay. the, the Latin of subsistence conveys the idea of personhood. Okay. Okay. And, and, and again, some of these terms um, go back a long way, but that's the basic thinking uh, through it. One God, one being, one essence. That is, what is God? Well, God is one what? One being. Who right. is God? He's multiple persons, a plurality of persons. Okay. So the doctrine of the Trinity reflects the Christian belief that God is eternally and simultaneously exists as three distinct and distinguishable, though not separate persons. So now God, there you use the word exist instead of subsist. <laughs> correct. But but remember, we're talking about God eternally and simultaneously exists. Uh, or you could okay, use the word. Okay, gotcha. Right. Gotcha. I as three distinct and distinguishable persons. Now, the idea there is 
that God doesn't become Trinitarian. Um, you know, the Father has begat the Son from all eternity. So they have a father-son relationship from all eternity. It's not something the Father chose to do. Now, what does that mean? The the existent the the pre-existence of the Son, that the Son is begotten. Well, the church wrestled with the idea that when someone begets, that which is begotten is the same as the begetter. So there's a difference between begotten and created. You beget something equal to you. You create something inferior to you. So the father didn't create the son. The father begat the son, but it's not an act of his will. It never had a time. A beginning in time. So somehow the subsistence of the Son, the personhood of the Son, is dependent upon the Father, but it is an eternal relationship. And then we can talk about the procession of the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds, and I'm a Western Christian. I agree with the filioque. So the, the, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son eternally, it's not an act that happened in time. There was no beginning to it. Now, again, we can say, man, this, this is tough. Of course, again, I would say um, if you and I could understand all of it, if we could fully fathom it. Now, I, again, I think that we have a basic understanding. We're wrestling with terminology, and that's a good thing. But if we could totally, if I could own it, if I if I could explain how the persons of the Trinity relate to each other the way they understand it, I couldn't be a mere creature. I would have to be God. So we're wrestling here, and the church is wrestling. And I think we should, therefore, when people come to us and say, hey, I've got some problems with the Trinity, I think we can be somewhat sympathetic. We can say, look, it's not an easy doctrine. Um, we do have to kind of labor with it. So here's the Belgic Confession uh, again. It is evident that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and that, likewise, the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Nevertheless, these persons, thus distinct, are neither divided nor fused or mixed together. So again, the idea we can distinguish them, but there is a unique unity of persons within the Godhead. And we, we can distinguish them, uh, distinguished, not separated. I make this statement in my book, uh, uh, without a doubt. I say the three distinct persons, through though distinguished from each other, all share equally the one divine essence and are thus the one God. So God is one in essence or being, but three in personhood or subsistence. So each of the three persons, persons is not greater than the other. Each of the three persons fully and equally share the one divine essence. So the Father is not ontologically, in terms of his being, greater than the Son. The Father and the Son are not ontologically greater than the being of the Holy Spirit. So these three persons share equally that one divine essence. So it's still monotheism. Now, of course, uh, Judaism has pushed back and said, boy, it sounds like 
sounds like you've got uh, polytheism or tritheism. And of course, Islam, this is one of the things about Christianity that they find most offensive, along with the incarnation. So again, there's uh, a differentiation uh, in all of this. Now, let me say a little bit about about some of the heresies that come along. One of the heresies that existed in the early church was called modalistic monarchianism. Think of a monarch, one ruler, right? Manas, one, arche, rule. Modalistic monarchianism was also called Sabellianism after a man named Sibelius. And again, this heresy makes sense, but it's contradicted by scripture. Um, Modalism says that there's only one God and only one person, but that one person, as I mentioned before, changes modes, changes activities, changes appearance. He's the Father, but then he appears as the Son. Then he appears as the Spirit. And by the way, heresies never go away. Uh, the Arian heresy, um, the Gnostic heresy, the modalistic heresy, the tritheism heresy, they're all apparent today. And um, a good example of the modalistic heresy is found in the Jesus-only oneness Pentecostalism. Now, I need to differentiate, very important here, not talking about Pentecostalism as a whole. I'm not talking about the four square. I'm not talking about assembly of God. One of the very thoughtful and careful things that the assembly of God did in the early part of the 20th century is they said, look, um, there's a group uh, calling themselves Jesus only, and they're affirming a heresy. They're embracing modalism. They're embracing Sabellianism. Uh, and that church is alive and well today. Again, we call them Jesus only, the oneness Pentecostals. So when you teach Christian doctrine, there's always the challenge that uh, people on the outside are going to critique it, right? So Trinitarianism, well, the Jews are going to critique it, traditional Judaism. Islam is going to critique it. But then there's also possible that people within the church may misunderstand it and begin teaching in error. That, that's what makes me very respectful of church history. I agree that in when you read it, church history is a mess. I'm referencing uh, my discussion with my good friend Dave Rockstad. He, he read a book on church history that I recommended, and one of the things I love about Dave is he is such a bookish person uh, I recommend books, and he actually reads them, for goodness sake. Um, and, and Dave came back, and I said, well, what'd you think? This was Bruce Shelley's book. And uh, Dave said, what a mess. <laughs> and you know what? He's right. Anytime human beings are involved in it, it is a mess, because human beings are fallen sinners who have been forgiven by grace. Uh, so anytime you have humans involved, uh, there's a mess. But what I respect about church history is they have faced these issues. And so many of the issues that we face today, they already face them. So, again, I have friends and uh, they like contemporary worship. They uh, 
kind of adopt a, a non-denominational, they're a little leery of Catholics and Protestants and all of that formal stuff in the past. The only thing that I would say to them is I say, look, I I'm uh, I respect your non-denominational approach. I respect that you're thoroughly Christian. Um, you're affirming the Trinity, but there are things we can learn from the past. There are reasons that the church did uh, certain things. All right. Well, that's that's one of the heresies on one side. Of course, another heresy would be tritheism. So instead of one God who just changes spaces, right? Um, tritheism says there's actually three separate beings. Um, I think we see that in Mormonism. I think the Latter-day Saints are tritheists. They believe in three separate gods. Now, again, back to the, the Belgic Confession. For the Father did not take on flesh, nor did the Spirit, but only the Son. The Father was never without his Son, nor without his Holy Spirit, since all these are equal from eternity in one and the same essence. There is neither a first nor a last, for all three are one in truth and power, in goodness and mercy. Now, let me just touch a couple of comments there. The Belgic Confession says, for the Father did not take on the take on flesh, nor did the Spirit, but only the Son. Um, by the way, if you're a modalist, if you're a Sabellianist, and you believe God is one being, one person who just changes form, then you would also be called a patre passionist. That is, you would say the Father died on the cross. Because you believe there's only one person who just changes faces. So it's the same person. It's the same being, right? Uh, no, we can distinguish the, the, the son took on flesh. Uh, and that distinguishes him from the father and the spirit. Now, another point that the confession makes, the father was never without the son nor without the Holy Spirit since all three of these are equal in eternity in one and the same essence. Now, here's a here's a, a mind bender. That means that uh, Jesus, who was a single person, uh, who had a fully divine nature, and yet also a fully human nature, but he was one person. He was not two people. He was one person in two natures. But while in his human nature, he was living on earth, he was walking and healing and going out on the Sea of Galilee and operating as a genuine, fully human being, uh, through his divine nature, he was never separated from the Father. So in his attributes, he was one. Now this is, wow, uh, maybe a rationalist will come along and say, eh, this this involves a lot of mystery. Uh, well, it does. Uh, it, it does involve a challenge. But if God is who he says he is, if God has revealed himself the way scriptures say he has, we have to wrestle with all those kinds of things. Now, I have, uh, me, uh, uh, go ahead. Can, yeah, just a couple of questions. Sure. Um, the scripture in one place at least, refers to God as a spirit. This is in John. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, 
the scripture also refers to the Holy Spirit as being the spirit of Christ. Yeah. It also spirit refers to him as being the spirit of the Father. How this kind of gives some of a, a, a nuance to the idea of the Holy Spirit being this dist distinct person, and yet he's still the spirit of the Christ. He's still the spirit of the Father. How do you, do you have any comment on that? No, that's correct. And and again, we want to we want to think carefully and clearly about it. First, I would say, God. And now I'm speaking of God as the Trinity, the God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a spiritual being. That is, He doesn't have a body, contrary to the Greco-Roman religions that viewed God as having a body, or even Mormonism. Um, God is pure spirit, but there are specific occasions in Scripture, Dave, that you have pointed out. Uh, sometimes the Holy Spirit is referred to as just the Holy Spirit, sometimes as the Spirit of God. Other times he's described as the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of the Father. Um, I think the way we want to carefully think that through is the Holy Spirit is a distinct person. But he also has a relationship of the Father uh, and the Son, and, and Scripture is comfortable calling him the Spirit of the Father or the Spirit of the Son. What it's really conveying is that he's God, uh, that he's on an equal footing with the Father and with the Son. And again, language, Joe, I think of you as an editor, and by the way, I think of the culture in which we live, um, it seems to me that postmodernism has had a big impact. And one of the elements of postmodernism is that language is arbitrary. And, uh, you know, so language never has exact meanings. Therefore, people kind of use language to kind of uh, achieve their goals or make a power play. Whereas, um, Christianity, which is pre-modern rather than post-modern, it says that God can reveal himself, and he can reveal himself in words. Uh, he is, uh, though the, 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 those words have to be looked at very carefully. God uses analogies and things of that nature. In fact, um, the great Catholic philosopher Thomas Aquinas says, all of our knowledge of God is analogical. It's not univocal. It's not equivocal. So, you know, if I say uh, Jesus is the Lamb of God, well, do I mean that univocal? Is it is he like a sheep? Is he exactly like a sheep? Or can I use it equivocal? Uh, is it completely different than a sheep? No. Um, when Jesus is called the Lamb of God, it's an analogy. It's both like and unlike. So language is difficult, but language can contain truth. And that's why we believe we have this revelation called Scripture. Dave, was there another question in there? Well, there is, but I want to make a, an inference from what you just said. I, okay. I really liked what you said about um, the relationship that the Spirit has with the Son and with the Father. 
And I, I have just connected this now with this filioque in the sense that that uh, you could say that the that Christ or Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is related to the Father as Son. Yeah. The Spirit is related to the Father as His Spirit. Yeah. The but now we also have the Spirit of Christ. Yeah. The Holy Spirit being referred to as the Spirit of Christ, and so that supports the view of the Western Church, which is that He proceeds. The word proceed then is the word that's used to describe this relationship between the spirit and the father and the spirit and the son. Is that a correct I, inference? Yes. And I, and I agree with you. I think that that distinction supports the filioque. Um, the unique view of the Eastern church is that the spirit proceeds only from the father and that that's just too much to get into at this point but right i understand I, I think your point is right on target now let me read a quotation from my old friend and colleague robert m bowman b-o-w-m-a-n i knew rob uh at the christian research institute we worked together for a number of years um uh, rob has gone on to uh other ministries, uh, the Institute for Religious Research, uh, IRR. Uh, you can go on the website, uh, the Institute for Religious Research, Robert Bowman, Robert M. Bowman. I have to say Robert M. because my pastor is also Robert Bowman, hmm. uh, but the, they have a different middle initial. That's how I distinguish them. Uh, here's what Rob said, and Rob wrote a book years ago that I'll recommend in a, in a few minutes. Uh, Rob says this, there is a difference between gaining a basically correct understanding of something and having a complete, comprehensive, all-embracing, perfect understanding of it. And what he means there is that's how we should think of our understanding of the Trinity. There's a, there's a difference between gaining a basically correct understanding of something and having a complete, comprehensive, all-embracing, perfect understanding. I think I understand the Trinity. Uh, I have to wrestle with it. I have to think about language. I have to think about uh, scripture, uh, but I don't fully fathom the Trinity. And uh, there are critics, both skeptical critics and religious critics who say, I, that's just a, that's a bridge I can't, walk across. Again, I think the the historic Christian response to that is, well, look, um, if you and I can understand him, he's not God. If we can fully fathom him, if we can totally comprehend him, he's not God. And therefore, uh, you have mystery. And this is a challenge to many of us who are apologists. I mean, I would like to perfectly explain Christianity to all the skeptics. I'd like to go into the church and say, now let me give you a comprehensive, un let me share my comprehensive understanding of the Trinity. But I can't do that. I can give clarity as to, I can interpret in a fair-minded way scripture, um, but there's, there's always mystery. And there's mystery in the Trinity there's mystery in the atonement. There's mystery in the incarnation. 
There's mystery when it comes to God's attributes. In fact, I think it's fair to say that everything about God involves mystery. Why? Because he's infinite and eternal, and we're temporal, finite creatures. And if you get put off by it, and again, I, I, I have some sympathy for people who say, wow, uh, that's a that's a bridge too far. I I I sympathize that it'd be nice if we had all of our ducks in a row, uh, but it is God after all, and and I think we we have to kind of live with that. Joe, question comment? Uh, yeah, uh, here's a question. Uh, a slide or two ago, uh, we looked at uh, I think it was the Belgian. Confession saying the father was never without his son. How are we to understand Jesus on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, taken from, I think it was Psalm 22. But it seems like uh, there is a separation. So in what sense are we to understand that? Yeah, um, a tough one. Um <laughs> I think that the Belgic Confession is correct when it says, uh, and it does say this, the Father was never without the Son, uh, nor without the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a second. I There's a couple things here. Um, the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So if he proceeds from the Father and the Son, then how could the Father never be without his Spirit? Well, re remember the idea that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but this is nothing that ever begins in time. It's not an act of the will. This is the way God is. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have this, um, they have this family relationship where there is, uh, where the Father, where, where the Son is begotten by the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but that's the very nature of God. It never began in time. Now, let's go back to your question, Joe, but wait a second, uh, and, and this is something someone should raise. Uh, hey, you're saying the Father was never without the Son, but then Jesus was on the cross. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wasn't he separated? I think the way to understand it is this, that within the divine essence that Jesus possessed, he was never separated from the Father. Within his divine essence, remember, he shares that one divine essence equally with the Father and the Spirit. So from the standpoint of his divinity, he was never separated from the Father. Uh, the father was never without his son, but in terms of his incarnation, where he has a human nature, then in that context of the human nature, he experiences this separation. Now, again, there, that raises even further questions, but you could, we could also say that when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember, that language in the Old Testament was was considered messianic. So Jesus may have been conveying, at least partly there, I'm that person you always expected to come. I'm fulfilling that here today. So 
I don't feel like I've given you an answer that's fully convincing, but that is the way uh, we think about it. There is that mystery of uh, when Jesus, um, in the incarnation, again, a Latin term meaning coming in the flesh. It's not in the Greek New Testament, obviously, because it's a Latin word, but the Greek equivalent is sarx. Jesus is come in the flesh, sarx, agenita, sarx. Um, and so it's very important in the incarnation to realize that Jesus is fully God. He's fully human, fully man, uh, but he's a single person. But through his divine nature, he remains connected to the Father and the Spirit. He, he has all of his attributes. Uh, but through his human nature, he gets hungry, he gets thirsty, he can suffer. Um, and I, I think what we, can, what we can recognize here is this can even help us in our debate with Jehovah's Witnesses because they always say, and that's where I want to go next, they always say, yeah, wait a minute, how could Jesus be God? You know, he he doesn't know when the second coming is going to happen. He is, he says the Father is greater than I am. Um, he gets hungry, thirsty. I think we have to understand that there, this is an expression of his human state. Whereas as a man, as a human being, the Father was his God. And in his human nature, he had limitations and boundaries, uh, and he could suffer. Now, let me move uh, to kind of keep our time from getting away from us. I want to say something about my first challenge, apologetically. Uh, it related to the Trinity and to Jehovah's Witnesses who hold something like an Arian Christology. Remember Arius of Alexandria uh, in the fourth century? Uh, made the claim that um, that Jesus was created by the Father. So uh, the Son was a highly created being, but he was not fully God. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses hold a view very similar to that. Um, also, the Christadelphians hold a view very close to that, another Aryan type of of group. Well, I um, this is like 1979. I had uh, I had uh, I have kind of a hard time describing my conversion because, in one sense, in 1978, I really became a Christian, but in some respects, I think. It's also possible that I may have returned to the fullness of my faith, because even as a child, I believed in God. And even as a child, though, I didn't have a good understanding, didn't read scripture, but I was a Catholic and I, I did believe that Jesus was God. So uh, I was probably a very uninformed person, but nevertheless, uh, a Jehovah's Witness. I, went, I was playing basketball at a park in Lakewood. And uh, we always went there because their rims were nice. They had nice nets and we would play basketball there. And I thought I was a pretty good basketball player. In fact, I always thought I was a better basketball player than I was a baseball player. But anyway, I played this Jehovah's Witness and uh, he beat me on the court. And I didn't like it. <laughs> um, he, it was close, 
but he was a little bit better shooter and uh he nipped me and i couldn't beat him so afterwards we drank a little gatorade and uh we got into a discussion about religion and lo and behold he was a jehovah's witness and uh he he argued with me about hell. He argued with me about the Trinity. He raised all of these verses, and I wasn't very well trained and thought. Uh, I hadn't been taught carefully. I knew I believed in the Trinity. I know I knew I believed in hell. I knew the witnesses were off, but he checkmated me. He he turned me into this is the way I'm going to describe it. It's the language of my old friend Walter Martin. He, uh, in fact, he twisted me into a doctrinal pretzel. Hmm. And I, I remember driving in my car. I remember my car. It was a uh, 1973 Omega. Uh, uh, and... Uh, I remember it because I pushed it almost as much as I drove it. It was not a great automobile. Automobile it broke down when I took girlfriends out in it, including my my wife Joan. Anyway, uh, I remember I was humiliated. I thought, Lord, I've I've disappointed you. Here I am, a Christian, and I I didn't very successfully communicate Christianity. So I told the Lord as I was driving home, I said, uh, next time I'm going to beat that guy on the court and I'm going to be better prepared to challenge that apologetic uh, of the Jehovah's Witness. And I began working on both. Next time we played, I beat him on the court. Pretty good. I beat him. And uh, he had a lot harder time with me because I would then lay out the scripture. And I'll, I'll tell you, with Jehovah's Witnesses, and again, Having met Walter Martin, who was the original Bible answer man, who was a Baptist minister, had degrees in philosophy. Walter went to school in New York City, uh, had a master's degree in philosophy from NYU. And Walter wrote the, the definitive book that I'll mention here in just a minute. But, you know, I went to Walter's class at one point at Melody Land, which is in Anaheim at the time. It's kind of a, a charismatic church, uh, kind of non-denominational. But I remember going to Walter's class for a number of years, and he had more than 700 people coming to his Bible class. Um, that was quite a, uh, an experience to go to that church. And then a, another class uh, was John Warwick Montgomery, who had 11 earned degrees, who was a, had debated some of the leading skeptical people, people who are critical of Christianity, both religious and secular. He taught a class there. And I thought, wow, this is uh, this is an amazing place. And um, Walter taught in such a way that you just kept coming back to these things, the Trinity, the Incarnation. Anyway, uh, that was the first challenge. And I will tell you this, and I, I hope to write about it uh, in, a, in a manuscript, uh, God willing. That I came up with a way of approaching Jehovah's Witnesses that is pretty successful. There, there's no iron, you know, there's no silver bullet talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. They're difficult. Uh, when you encounter them, recognize that that's kind of what Athanasius had when he was dealing with it. But the approach that I took, uh, I've seen two things that are effective. One is I begin in the Old Testament. And I call Yahweh Jehovah, 
I say, now, Jehovah in the Old Testament, uh, you know, he's the only Savior. Uh, this is true of Jehovah. Jehovah is the only Savior. But in the New Testament, Jesus is the Savior. Well, if 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 only Jehovah is the Savior, but Jesus is the Savior, then Jesus must be Jehovah. Rather than debating verse by verse, I say, you know, there are things said about Jehovah that in the New Testament, the very same thing is said about Jesus. Another issue that I bring up with them is, again, the debates often go, here, here is often the debate for 30 years with me and Jehovah's Witnesses. I would say that the Bible teaches the Trinity. And they'd say, no, it doesn't. And I'd say, yes, it does. And they'd say, no, it doesn't. And I say, yes, it does. And we go verse to verse. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. So one day I just asked a, a, a lady on on um, Twitter, I said, uh, you're a Jehovah's Witness. I said, you believe that Jehovah is one God, one person. So I said, before Jehovah created the world, before he created Jesus or Christ, because Christ is a created being, um, or he created human beings, who did he love? And I said, is Jehovah, according to the Watchtower, a God of love? And you know, it changed the whole context I, I'm not saying I was successful. She didn't fall on her knees through Twitter and say, I believe, and I'm now a Nicene Trinitarian Christian. No, but it changed the whole context. I said, by the way, when you go door to door and they have to log the hours they spend door to door. Think about that. Got to log the hours. Got to be a faithful witness. Uh, I said, do you tell people that Jehovah loves them? And I said, by the way, do you ever have doubts that Jehovah loves you? Can you lose Jehovah's love? It just changed. And of course, those are some things that I've tried to do over the years. But um, if you have a hard time with Jehovah's Witnesses, realize that one of the greatest theologians in the history of Christianity, I think the most honored theologian in the history of Christianity, outside, of course, the biblical authors like Paul, it would probably be Athanasius who is considered a saint by the Orthodox and Catholic traditions. And whenever I, I think uh, the vast majority of Protestants would probably say that Athanasius is either their favorite church father or right at the top, so he's deeply honored, he had a hard time. Uh, so these heresies kind of never go away. Joe, Dave, any questions? I do have a few books that I want to mention. And then we'll carry this over into another program. Nope, nothing for me. Well, let, yeah, me, give you, let me give you a couple books here. Um, let me bring you back to my my friend, my mentor, Walter Martin. Uh, I uh, when I first met Walter and went to his class, I I kind of became a Martin clone. I remember I would quote what he quoted. So this one guy one day. Uh, that I was talking to, he goes, man, you, you, you're like Walter Martin clone, you know, why don't you get a life? And I thought, <laughs> oh, okay, I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I am, you know, going too far with this, but Walter had a big influence on me. And um, I really admired his, his courage. Um, I admired his wisdom. Um, I worked with him a long time. Uh, 
I realized though later that I had to be myself. I don't have I don't have Walter's skill set. I don't have his personality. Uh, I remember I taught his Bible class, and I thought, well, maybe I maybe my ministry now. You know, Craig Hawkins taught. He was on the Bible Answer Man after Walter died. Then Craig left. There was a couple of us on the Bible Answer Man: Paul Carden, Ron Rhodes, Rob Bowman, Ken Samples. Um, well, I liked having the other people on there because they could answer questions maybe I, I couldn't answer. But I remember, I remember teaching Walter's class, and um, lady said to me one day after I'd answered a question, she goes, she looked at me, and she goes, "You're no Walter Martin." I didn't like that, but that's true. If you want to read, I think still the definitive book on new religious movements, it's Walter Martin's "The Kingdom of the Cults," still in print. It's multiple editions. I think maybe it's in its sixth edition. It's had a couple different editors because Walter died June 26, 1989. He's been gone a while. He has another book that I read so many times. I could show you guys uh, where the pages are falling out because I read it so much and underlined it so much called Essential Christianity. That's a terrific little book. I, I put it up there May not be quite like mere Christianity, but it's close. It's it's like John Stott's basic Christianity, and I think so highly of that. Now, a couple other books. Uh, my friend Robert Bowman is a real specialist on Jehovah's Witnesses. I, uh, I've read a lot about the Witnesses. I think Rob knows a good bit more than I do. Uh, years ago, he wrote a book, Why You Should Believe in the Trinity, uh, a response to Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a small book, but it's thoughtful. Uh, I think it's probably out of print, but Amazon has copies. And then there's another book by a very fine theologian, Anglican theologian, Peter Toon, T-O-O-N. His book, Our Triune God, this looks at scripture. And so Old and New Testament, uh, that's a book you want to study through, uh, but it's a terrific book. And then, of course, I would just simply and quickly say, in my book, A World of Difference, and in my book, Without a Doubt, I have chapters on the on the Trinity that can be helpful. So, Joe, I took a lot of time there, but uh, sometimes it's hard to rush the Trinity. Yeah. Thank you for that, Ken. Thank you for the recommendations as well. We hope people will uh, take up those uh, suggestions and let us know. Let us know about the books that Ken recommends and about Ken's books uh, as well as you read those. You can reach out to Ken via Twitter, which is at RTB underscore K samples. We'll be glad to read your comment here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.